Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, our good friend Peter Schneider, manager and executive secretary of the Public Lending Rights Program, sits down with author and publisher Linda Leith to discuss her memoir, The Girl from Dream City, A Literary Life. Linda is the founder and former director of the Blue Metropolis Festival in Montreal and founder of Linda Leith Publishing. The Miramichi Reader says, We in Canada are fortunate to have such a person as Linda Leith, active in the Montreal and Canlit literary scene. Her small but vibrant publishing company produces a select amount of titles, fiction and nonfiction, highlighting Quebec's English writers. Her very personal and highly enjoyable life essay, The Girl from Dream City, will doubtless be an influential book for those seeking a literary life, either as a writer or editor or publisher or all three. Here's Peter Schneider in conversation with Linda Leith. Linda, I really enjoyed reading your new book, uh, The Girl from Dream City. And perhaps the first question I'd like to begin with, or just as a, a way in, is to talk about the late critic Pauline Kael and the way that she tried to capture the identity of Cary Grant by calling him the man from Dream City. And the whole concept of of Dream City, and um, you are the girl from Dream City. Tell us about this. So, um, yes, it's a, a term that I first read in that piece by Pauline Kael about uh, Cary Grant, um, a very winning title for an article, I thought, and a really good feature about Cary Grant. And what struck me about the article, especially, and I think I read it when it first came out, but I obviously have reread it since. Um, what struck me when I first read it, and which still does, is that is the way that Cary Grant sounded, his voice. And he came from uh, a pretty messed up family in Bristol in England and had uneven parenting and not much money. And he, at some point after his mother had been institutionalized, he basically went his own way as a very, as a boy, really, as a, t- a teenager, and made his own life, which of course became that of a mega superstar, um, and basically transformed himself in the process into someone who had a voice that seems to come from nowhere. He doesn't sound like uh, a fairly a boy from a family of very modest means in Bristol. He doesn't sound like that at all. He doesn't sound like someone from anywhere in particular. He sounds like a man from Dream City, as Pauline Kael said. And 
I loved that idea. And then much more recently, I came across the idea and a reference to Pauline Kael's article, again, this time in one of Zadie Smith's brilliant essays. I'm a great admirer of her essays. And this one is called Speaking in Tongues. And she picks up on this idea of Dream City and refers to Pauline Kael's article, but then takes it towards her own experience uh, growing up in um, a lower middle class area of Wilsdon in London. And then obviously being a very brilliant young woman going to Cambridge and losing her London accent, her working class London accent and becoming a Cambridge educated young Englishwoman whose voice was unrecognizable from the way she had sounded just a few years earlier when she was still living in London. And she talks about many other things in that essay as well. She talks about Obama, she talks about, and she talks about Dream City and tries to describe it as a place where there are these, which is populated by people with identities that incorporate different parts of their life, different aspects of their experience. And there are many such people, there are countless people that you could say that about, and I am one of those people. And that's where the idea came from. And then, you know, one of the wonderful things when you're uh, writing a book or writing anything of any length is that one thought leads to another and you discover or rediscover things that you had completely forgotten about. And so it was thinking about Dream City and Pauline Kael and Zadie Smith and my own story. And moving through the book, I was talking at some point, um, not at great length, but I was certainly talking about the Blue Metropolis Montreal International Literary Festival, which of course I founded and directed for the first 14 years. And what came to mind was, I think it was in the second year of the festival, uh, the, the, the then mayor of Montreal, uh, Mayor Pierre Bourque, ha, was one of our guests of honor for the opening ceremony. And as many people did and still do, he wanted to know what does Blue Metropolis refer to? And so I told him about Blue Metropolis, which is a title that has intrigued many people and how I had come up with the name and that it's a, a, a utopian idea. It's an idea about a city in which, which is inclusive and which in, includes people from all various mixed and um, almost unidentifiable backgrounds all mingling together, which of course is what you have at and had at Blue Metropolis as a festival. And which is of course the city I love the idea of and would love to be, to live in. And uh, 
And so he listened to this. He was a very thoughtful man, Mayor Bork. And he said to me, une ville de rêve, a dream city. And I only remembered that. I mean, that was back in about 19, uh, sorry, 20, when was it? 20, 2001, I think it was. And basically, I'd forgotten about it until I was writing this book and writing about Dream City. And I realized that that was exactly what he had said. And so, of course, I had to use that as well. What I really enjoyed about this book, you have touched on in, in, your, in your comments and in your answer to my first question, uh, is this notion of multiplicity and of writers, and I suppose of many people, being authors of their own lives and the, the element of self-invention uh, that is so intrinsic to a literary career um, and the multiplicity of someone such as yourself who's lived in many places, who identifies strongly with different cultures and places, and for example, may learn French but speak it with a German accent because you were in Germany at the time or in Switzerland, in Basel when you first began to hear and speak German. Would you like to comment on this, this, um, this notion of invention and multiple selves? Yes, I must say it isn't something that I have really thought about a great deal, but I think you're right. And I, I have led many different lives um, in several different languages in several different countries. And at a certain point, I think, I moved around, as you must know, a lot when I was growing up. First, I was born in Northern Ireland. I then, my family moved to London. Um, after a few years there, we moved to Basel in Switzerland. I spent three years there going to school in German. And then back to London, and then four years later to Montreal, and later other places, Budapest most notably, I lived there for a couple of years. Anyway, at some point when I was a child still and an adolescent, these felt like very different lives. And to the extent that I actually effectively forgot the three years that I spent in Basel and never thought of that. It was as if the, those years had not happened. Now, if someone asked me about it, yes, I would say, oh yes, I went to Seebogelschule or I would remember the shop I used to do grocery shopping at and, you know, but I had to be prompted. It wasn't part of my memory stream. And I think, when that happens, you, you sort of have to reinvent yourself because you, you've lost that continuity from the past. And now there I was, age nine, back in London, going to Hampstead Parochial School and then to a secondary school and recreating a life in English. So, I don't know what more to say about it, except that 
I do that. I've I've kept on doing that. Not not so much perhaps only in terms of different places, cities, countries, languages even, but in terms of the way I spend my time, I have changed. I've always been a literary person, but I have moved from job to job to job. And in that sense, also reinvented myself as a festival director. I had never been to a literary festival when I was planning Blue Metropolis. Um, more recently, a publisher of literary fiction and nonfiction, etc. So these are all different lives and I've led them all. It's all me, <laughs> but it sometimes surprises me to think about how I did make those transitions. As I read your book, one of the things that emerged for me as a reader, and I had to start the book several times before I realized that there's a spikiness, there's a quality to the prose and the composition of this book that I think is deliberate, where ordinarily someone writing an autobiographical piece or, or a memoir seeks to have a unified tone or a roundness or a sense of omniscience. In, in this book, there's, a, there's almost a fragmented quality or a fractal quality of you looking at yourself and your life and your family from different ages and stages and different levels of awareness. And the example I'll, I'll ask you to comment on, from the outset, when you write about your parents, they're not just mummy and daddy, they're also Desmond and Nan, your father Desmond and your, your mother Nan. Can you unpack for us a little bit some of the, the choices you made as a writer and whether that was a conscious approach to how you were telling the story in this book? Uh, I think it evolved. Um, I think at some point when I was writing, I felt there was a danger in writing this particular book, my particular story, that it could become um, sentimental, it could become too emotional. There's a lot of emotion in it. Um, and so I wanted to, I didn't want to overpower the reader with that. I wanted, and I wasn't, I wanted to understand, I think, is the best way of putting it. I wanted to understand what had, what had transpired as I was growing up and when I was a young woman in a way that had never been, it had never been possible for me to understand because of, for reasons that I explained, that there was a sort of veil of secrecy around some of my parents' lives. And so I, I was really, to some extent, it was an intellectual exercise of trying to piece it together finally and put all those everything that I had seen and heard and learned later on and knew from whatever other sources together to tell the story. 
some of the fragmentation, I think, is inevitable because there were so many very big changes in my life, in my family, my life with my family, and later as well. Um, I think your comment about how I look at my younger self is actually very interesting because as I, I think I comment on at some point very near the end of the book, I, I was thinking about that too. And I, I th- I, it seemed to me that I was looking at my younger self at different ages, childhood, adolescence, in my 20s, my 40s, etc., as that was a girl who was, or a woman, who was like someone who was once a friend, someone I once knew intimately. But I have perforce moved on. I am no longer that person. I'm the person who has lived everything that's happened since that time. And so I think that there is that sense. I even felt at some point, it was almost like having a sister that you were once close to, but now you've moved apart and you only see each other, you know, once every year or two or whenever you can. So that evolved in the process, and it's partly, I think, a result of the, the story I had to tell and wanted to tell and have told, and partly um, I, wanted, I wanted to keep it as light as it could be. I didn't want it to be weighed down with too much... Um, Too much uh, of what could be, I think, very strong emotions, which I think would be, I hadn't, I needed to earn whatever emotions I was going to uh, inspire in the reader. I didn't want to lay it on thick from the start. You know, as, as I read the book, and I'm, you know, encountering you as a younger person, what emerges, and I think will emerge for, for any reader, um, your intelligence, your resilience as a child, um, someone who from a very young age uh, had a fascination with language and a facility with language and with languages. And yet you are continually as a younger person running up against the, the barriers or the limitations placed on young girls and women in the mid-century. And one of the episodes in the book occurs when you are writing a Latin language exam, a Latin test, and you improvise or you add a Philip at the end of the page. Tell us about that moment in your education as a gifted student. Yes, it, um, it's certainly not the most dramatic incident in the book, but it is one that has certainly stayed with me because I... I loved school. I always loved school. And I thrived at school. And at the time that you're asking about, I was uh, 12 years old. And I had been studying Latin for about a year at a very good school in London. And 
we had a very good teacher and I admired her greatly. And one of the things she did to her eternal credit is that she got us to, well, we were reading Caesar's war commentaries in Latin and translating bits of that. We were reading um, Cicero. We were reading poems by some of the great Silver Age Latin poets um, and epigrams. And I just loved this. And what she, she did was she would get us to translate much of this work into English. And it was my first, uh, well, in some sense, it wasn't my first exposure to translation because I had lived in German and translated for my mother. But it was my first experience of literary translation of poems and excerpts from journals and essays by great uh, classical writers. And there was a test, and I can't remember what the test was, but I know that we must have been reading some of Cicero shortly before it, because I knew I had aced the test. I, I was very good at Latin. And at the end, I finished early writing the test paper, and I, uh, I wrote as a kind of joke at the bottom of my test paper, oh, me miseram. And I know we were reading Cicero because he had said at some point in one of his essays, oh, me miserum, which of course is what he would say as a man. As a girl, I had to make it feminine. So, oh, me miseram. And it was just, uh, I wasn't complaining because as I say, I think I did very well on the test. But, and I thought, and I, I loved my teacher. She thought, she knew how much I enjoyed the uh, translations because I used to work at them a great deal and do my best to make the English as eloquent as the Latin. And, but when she came in with the test papers for us, giving them all back to us the next class, she was furious. And as I soon realized, she was furious with me because I was not taking her test seriously. And she was outraged and she gave me a zero on the test. And that was, and still strikes me as being so terribly unfair and inexplicable. I couldn't imagine why she would have been so, I still cannot really understand why she was so angry. She must have had issues of her own is all I can say. <laughs> but it was one of those incidents when, you know, she gave me a zero to teach me what I, you know, it was in some sense, I think looking back, I don't think I thought this at the time, but when I look back on that, I think it was my, probably my first real attempt to express myself in whatever foolishly silly way it was, ome miseram, just three words in Latin. But uh, we never used Latin to communicate. We only read it, translated it, learned vocabulary, and learned grammar. Whereas what I was doing was actually trying to make a little joke on a paper. 
And I was slapped down for that. You know, as I read the book and you describe your family life and uh, the different places that you lived in your immediate family and your father's great professional success uh, and his uh, series of promotions. He worked in the pharmaceutical industry. He's a medical doctor and you're moving around the world. At the same time, you're describing a family environment that it sometimes could be almost unbearably intense or tense. And what I encountered was a sense of, at times, distress for you in terms of the expectations placed upon you as a young person, both spoken and unspoken, and at times your bewilderment at the adults around you. Is there a way that we can talk about your family upbringing and your experience as a young person? Um, as you say, without uh, going uh, heavy on it or, or asking for too much sympathy, but it does elicit, uh, I think, a, a deeply sympathetic response from the reader. Well, <clears throat> yes, I must say it was uh, quite an extraordinary upbringing. And I was in many ways, in many ways, I was a very privileged girl, uh, you know, living in these different cities and going to good schools and able to learn languages, etc. But at home, I, it was it was almost as though I led two different lives. I led a one life one life at home, especially in my adolescence when we moved to Canada. I was thirteen. And so I finished high school here. And when I was 14 and 15, there were, there were always battles with my father. And they, he, was a, he was an overpowering kind of man. And so that was oppressive and a very difficult. And I sought refuge at school and... So I thrived at school. I always loved school. And then I would come home and I would be in charge of, you know, a lot of domestic work, looking after my brothers and sisters and meals and meal preparation and various uh, chores because I was in the not ideal situation of being the eldest girl in a very big family. We were eight for years when we lived in, um, when we moved to Canada, because I have, um, there are five children. My parents had five children. I have two brothers and two sisters. Plus my grandmother, my mother's mother, lived with us after she was widowed for several years. So altogether that made eight of us, which is a large household. And there was always far too much to do. And my mother depended on me. And I, I had always, you know, been very willing, but it became oppressive during those years. And my father, um, I think he was becoming increasingly unstable. At any rate, he would fly into really quite frightening rages. As you grow and as you sort of arrive 
in the world and you you are academically astute and gifted you eventually have a phd uh you have um it would seem you know the world is is your oyster and at the same time you continue to take care of people in your life and one of the aspects of the book that caused me to reflect is the expectation culturally on people because of gender roles and the desire of artists and writers to express themselves and as you say in the book no one writes full time and for women who write and who have literary and academic careers there's the added expectation and uh, and obligation to juggle family and and caretaking along with individual pursuits do you like to comment on that uh yes i would because i I've, i've given it quite a lot of thought in recent years because um yes i have always had people to look after um at home with my younger brothers and younger brother and two younger sisters um later um i had three when i married i had three and have three sons and uh for part of the time uh when they were growing up i was a single parent um i think that and i would add because it's not just a question of family and young children uh it's also i think that i from an early age i liked to help people and to work with people and that started when i was about 15 and in a fantastic school production of the greek tragedy the trojan women and i was one of the main characters andromache but it was a huge cast because there was a chorus of uh, younger students who were in the core members of the chorus that required a great deal of rehearsing and um for sound and movement and dance and all kinds of stage business and i started working with them and so i became associate i forget associate uh, director or some such title and that's it felt very natural to me that i didn't want to just sit on the you know watching all this and being the star i could roll up my sleeves and pitch in and get something do something that was helpful that was a pleasure for me and it has remained a pleasure for me i am still drawn to i love working with other writers and translators and all kinds of people and helping make their work um as good as it can be and showcase their work and promote their work this is second nature to me and i don't i really don't see most of the time i would say i don't see a contradiction occasionally it can get too much and then i don't have the time to do my own writing or do my own thing whatever else that might be but most of the time i i don't know i seem to have lots of energy 
and I can get a great deal done in a day. Um, I can write in the morning and have lots of time and energy left over to do other things. And I think it was uh, at some point, Tony Morrison, who the great Tony Morrison mm -hmm. says that I write books, I read books, I edit books, I publish books. It's all one job. And that is not a, an exact quote, but that's the gist of it. And that's the way I feel. I feel that's what I do as well. And that that's what I have almost always done. I teach books. She also taught, um, etc. There's, it all, it's all one, it's all one passion, I guess. How have you found the last year with the, the ongoing sort of sporadic lockdowns and the, the, the pandemic rolling out? You're a, a person who is convivial and brings people together and enjoys the company of others. How have you coped over the last 14 months or so? Well, I miss having coffee with so many of my associates, old and new and meeting new people. I miss badly having the opportunity to have go out for lunch or dinner, go to the movies, all kinds of travel. Gosh, yes. I miss all that. But, um, and so, yes, I'm not going to deny that there are wistful moments when I look across, you know, I'm out at the shop and I see the restaurant that, I love to go to and I feel, and there it is closed and I feel very sad about that. But at the same time, I think that I'm, I also have, I also have always spent a lot of time in my own company as much as sometimes it's been uh, a challenge to find the time to do that. But I always have managed to do that, even if it is does mean getting up very early in the morning in order to have that quiet time. And so in some ways, my life has not changed that dramatically. I'm, I think, one of the very fortunate people who, you know, I have an, a nice place to live and uh, a wonderful husband. And there are Zoom calls and phone calls and letters and emails. And I look forward to whatever comes later, but it certainly isn't coming fast. And in the meantime, I'm doing okay. Linda, some people say that whenever this ends, that it will be like the roaring 20s, that there will be a resurgence just as after the, the Spanish influenza epidemic, uh, this ushered in the jazz age. Do you think that's possible, that we'll see this cultural uh, rebirth or, or re-energization of, of people when we're finally free to get together again? Isn't that a lovely idea? <laughs> I, I, I hope you're right. Um, in darker moments, I think, will we ever come to a point when we don't need to wear masks and social, you know, practice social distancing? Uh, but I hope you're right. I would, I would 
get some great joy out of out of that. Your career publicly has been so enmeshed with the literary community in Montreal as the festival director and founder of Blue Met, but also as a key organizer in the years just prior to the festival's launch in the consolidation of writing groups to create the Quebec Writers' Federation, the Q-Spell, the awards that take place each year at the Lion d'Or, and this, this fantastic community, although it's rooted originally in Anglophone culture, that's open and embracing of all languages and cultures. Please, can we talk about this a little bit about your work as a cultural organizer and particularly about Montreal as a world city of literature? Yes, I, I, I'm so happy, I have to say, to see the way that Montreal has evolved as a city of literature, especially, and of culture more generally. Um, because when I first came, uh, became really aware of the literary community uh, or communities perhaps in Montreal, the, the English language, the writers who worked in, were working in English and there were many of them and many talent, very talented and accomplished writers and translators who, some of whom are flourishing today just as much as they were then. But there was a, a feeling of despondency. And I think it came from, uh, it had some political roots because at the time we had, we were um, dealing with, we were being, I think English language writers were being rather ignored, both in English Canada, which tended to think of Quebec as being entirely or almost entirely Francophone. And within Quebec, where there was a very natural uh, interest in Francophone Quebec literature, literature québécoise, uh, and very little interest and very little awareness of the writers who worked in English with the, the single great, huge exception of Mordecai Richler, who didn't really help our reputation in the French end of town very much at all. But the fact is there were, in addition to Mordecai Richler, there were really dozens of other writers. And that's one of the things that I learned firsthand when I was working on an event. Um, at the time, I was the first vice, no, maybe second <laughs> vice chair of the Writers' Union of Canada. And I worked with a couple of other members of the Writers' Union of Canada who are also Montreal writers. And we organized, Anne Charney is one, Mary Soderstrom is the other. And we journeyed across town to the Maison des Écrivains uh, on Avenue Laval and to meet with the 
executive director and the president of UNIC, which is the French language writers union, mm -hmm. um, which is based in that beautiful house. And we proposed that we work together to organize the first ever literary event that would be a collaboration between the Writers' Union of Canada and UNEC, and that it would take place with English language writers and Francophone writers and work in translation and music. And it would be a literary show and it would take place at the Lyon d'Or, which is a um, still, as you mentioned earlier, used for some of the award ceremonies, as well as jazz events and other kinds of cultural events. And that did in fact come to pass in late October of uh, 1996. And it was called Write pour écrire. And it was a huge success. It was an unbelievable success. And the room was, or the hall was filled to the rafters, standing room only with francophones, anglophones, people from all kinds of other Montreal communities and language groups. And it was fun. And it showed me that there was an audience in Montreal for events that crossed linguistic boundaries, which had not been a feature of even in Montreal until that time. And that's where, that's what inspired me to try to put together a festival that would take place in uh, more than one language. And of course, Blue Metropolis, it started off in French and English. And then within a very short time, we were including writers who work in Italian and Spanish and Portuguese and Mohawk and Farsi, and I could go on and on, so that it became what I believe is truly the world's first multilingual literary festival, bringing all these people into under one roof at some downtown hotel, wherever we were based that year. And not only writers working in these many different languages, but one of the things I loved most about my job as I was president and artistic director, as well as having been the founder of the festival, uh, was that I would, if I knew that um, we were going to have an event with three Afghan women poets, this was at a time when we had all been reading about the horrors of the Taliban and its treatment of women in Afghanistan. And we brought three women who were poets, who worked in Dari, which is one of the Afghan languages. And one of them worked in French. And I think the other two worked in English as well as Dari. And we had, and I went and I, there's a wonderful grocery store that was just a few 20 minute walk from where I was living um, in Montreal which is owned by 
um, Iranians. It's called the Marche Achavan. And indeed, the Iranian community was very interested in this because people who write in Dari can be understood by people who speak Farsi. The languages are very close. And they agreed to advertise the event to the public, Afghan and Iranian public that went to their grocery store. They had a newspaper and they advertised the event there. And we ended up bringing in 40 people to a poetry event with these three women taking place entirely in Dari, as well as an absolutely massive event that took place in English and French um, for a more general Montreal public. So it was a it was a kind of literary social experiment and a very exciting thing to be doing. There was no model for that. And I still I anyway, I'm very proud of Blue Metropolis. I'm very happy that it still exists and is going strong and long may it thrive. Linda, I'd like to conclude by asking you about the Order of Canada. In December of last year, you were named to the Order as an officer of the Order of Canada for your contributions to Canadian liter literature and cultural life. If we think of Montreal as, as a dream city or potentially a dream city of culture, of inclusiveness, of democracy. What does being named to the Order of Canada mean to you as someone who arrived from somewhere else to become Canadian? I am, I am thrilled by the honor. And I am struck that after the announcement, which I think was in November, I heard from a lot of people who had seen the news or heard the news. People I hardly knew, in some cases, neighbors whom I haven't met, but who know who I am because we are neighbors and who are immigrants, far more recent immigrants than I am. And from places very far from the North of Ireland or the United Kingdom in the Middle East and elsewhere. And I think I became very vividly aware of how much that it does mean, maybe to everybody, but especially to an immigrant. I suppose, and I don't pretend to be, you know, one of those recent and in many cases traumatized immigrants and refugees. I, have, I led a very much different life. But I also come from somewhere else, and I have also spent a lot of my life not belonging in whatever the context was that I was in the midst of, not speaking the language or not speaking it very well, or speaking it with an accent. I always speak with an accent in all languages. Mm. And it was very... Um, very, it is a very moving thing to be so honoured, and I feel greatly honoured. It's clear to me as a working writer that you're still working at form and trying to express things 
in original ways and that you are not satisfied with the pat conventions of quote unquote memoir of, you know, it's a very popular genre saying this is not what that is. And do you think that in writing this book, as you continue to explore your life on the page, that it is a form, and I don't want to say a therapy, but a form of self rediscovery or discovery in terms of finding out what you think about things or how you feel about things, perhaps long after they've occurred in a way that would not be accessible otherwise? Oh, I think that's undoubtedly true. I think that that's one of the um, fabulous things about writing a memoir is that you go down a certain road in your story and in order to, to explain whatever the circumstances might be at that, at that moment, you find yourself, you have to open a door that has been closed because we all, we all forget most of what has happened to us. But when you writing, your writing can open that door and help you retrieve memories that you would probably never otherwise retrieve. Mm -hmm. So it's a, I think it's an extraordinary um, tool for exploring memory. And uh, I think that I have found that in, I found that very, very much in this book. Um, you know, I had an idea when I was embarked on it. I, I knew the grand ligne of my story without any doubt, but there were so many discoveries in the process that I, uh, I was very happy to make and surprised by in some cases. And in some cases, so surprised that the discoveries forced me to reconsider entire chapters that I had thought I, I knew quite well. That was Peter Schneider in conversation with Linda Leith about her memoir, The Girl from Dream City. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. And I want to thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.